Welcome to the conversation on TYT uh, as we get closer to the election, but most importantly to the primaries uh, in New York on the 23rd of June, rescheduled a few times, almost canceled, now happening. It's important to take a look at some of those races. So we're happy to have with us Shania Chaudhry, who is uh, running in the 5th District. Sean, uh, thanks for being here on the conversation. You're running against Greg Meeks. Greg Meeks is going, I think, for his 12th term in Congress. Uh, he seems to be a pretty popular Democrat uh, in Congress from those I know on the Hill. That said, uh, you want to shake up uh, the, the what, what's going on, the type of politics that are coming out of the 5th the District. I'm sorry. Uh, yes, the 5th District. It used to be the 6th, the 5th District okay. in New York. Tell us a little bit about the district and tell us about the moment you decided that you wanted to challenge uh, this incumbent. Yeah, so New York 5 is in Southeast Queens and outside parts of Nassau County. So it includes greater parts of Jamaica, the Rockaways, and it include Elmont Valley Stream. It is a minority majority district. It is a working class district. Uh, we have JFK Airport, Belmont Racetrack, and we've been the epicenter for the coronavirus pandemic. We've been the epicenter for a lot of police, a lot of policing, a lot of poverty. Um, so, you know, I'm running because I want to bring working class representation. Uh, I live in public housing. I've been in public education. So I'm a direct uh, reflection of that. And it wasn't until late 2018 uh, when Trump had decided to send out the military to the Tijuana border um, to really keep asylum seekers out. So from coming to the U.S. from Central South America, I organized with other veterans because I served six years in the Marines. And we want to show that we, as veterans, we care more than about veteran issues. We do care about immigration justice and on top of many other things we care about. So when we went down there, we saw firsthand what these families were going through. They were escaping poverty, government persecution, violence, a lot that our government has caused for, for decades. And when we came back, I asked Congressmember Meeks, hey, what can you do about it? You represent a district that is overwhelmingly, uh, that has a lot of immigrants, uh, we do have presence of, of ICE, and he does sit on the Foreign Affairs Committee, have a strong stance on this. And uh, I called him out on Twitter, and he decided to reply with an underwhelming answer. And I remember it. He said, what we need to do, we need to take out Trump, but we also need to create more bed space for the asylum seekers in the detention centers. These centers where families are being torn apart, children are being thrown in cages. And his answer was, we need to create more bed space for them. And that's when I realized that, you know, with 22 years, the same representation, he is out of touch with what's going on in, in 2020. So um, it was around then that I decided, you know what, if no one else is going to do it, uh, then, then I will. It's it's it's, uh, it's pretty impressive. And, and you also, I mean, have walked the walk. You see a lot of people challenging just because they're not happy with the status quo. Like you said, you've served in the Marines. You live in public housing, so you can talk uh, firsthand about uh, the effects that living and growing up in public housing in New York City has on, on both the, the politics uh, of the city, but also uh, that experience as it translates to the nation. Okay, so let's talk about the problems here. Uh, incumbency is a powerful thing. It's not uh, only powerful. Uh, it also brings along with it uh, name recognition. How has it been uh, getting your name out there, getting to uh, spread the word about your candidacy at a time when, you know, campaigning is not certainly what it was even just five months ago? Yeah, the difference between my point and I is that I'm an organizer first. So as organizers, we know how to overcome obstacles. Even with the coronavirus pandemic, 
we realized how early on, how important it was to switch our strategy uh, digitally. And because we do have a lot of young and smart people on this campaign, uh, we were able to reach out to almost every voter, uh, whether it's through text, through phone calls, social media. We did everything we, we could to really get our name out there. And people are looking into our messages. They're looking at our policies. And that's what we're trying to put forward is that, yes, our opponent has been in office for the last 22 years, but he is a part of the machine that is that cares more about just hoarding power. And what we want to bring is, as a people movement, we have the power already, but now we want to bring in the policies that can really help improve the quality of life for working class communities like you're in New York 5. Uh, you, you know, uh, I'm going to take you at your word, Sean. You say that you know how to overcome obstacles, but you're wearing a Mets jersey. I'm just going to take you at your word. Uh, but but uh, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, about that. I mean, you know, Greg Meeks, uh, like his predecessor before him, Floyd Flake, who, whose seat he has, the district has changed, but that's who he took over for to get into Congress. There are people that have reached across the aisle. There are people that have tried uh, to get things done by moderating. And a lot of people who watch politics now think that moderation is uh, has to leave uh, and, and that moderation hasn't gotten anything for a lot of poor Americans. Uh, how do you treat that part of Meek's personality profile, part of his resume? And, and where do you see yourself being able to moderate? Or do you think that's something that people shouldn't do right now? Yeah, I think in a time like this, especially what's going on with the racial injustices, we should have productive conversations with people who we do have differences with. However, for some reason, when it comes to Democrats, as the Democratic Party, we always seem to conform to the needs and the interests of the Republican Party. It's never been the other way around. So I don't see why as Democrats we continuously do, do the same thing over and over again. Not look out for the interests of the working person, but we try to meet halfway Republicans who are essentially doing the same things as as uh, establishment Democrats, which is looking out for the interests of Wall Street executives of the most powerful and wealthy in this world. And I think we need to look at the moral compass. And so, you know, I, you know, I think that it's important to have these discussions, but at the same time, we cannot compromise our morals and ethics uh, on the behalf of working people, uh, because that's what we're signed up to do, was really represent the people who have been long been left out of the democratic process. Uh, the voice of African-Americans uh, is uh, louder. It's being heard and heeded more than it has uh, in quite a while because of the George Floyd murder. Uh, now, at, as we move toward the politics of that, of legislating that, you're seeing uh, black voters more motivated than they have been in the past. This is obviously uh, uh, Greg Meeks is an African-American. Greg Meeks uh, has a connection to that community. Uh, how has that, I'm talking about a perfectly political sense in terms of you need to win an election here. How has that changed the way you approach this election? And I'm not talking about on policy because I'm sure your policies, uh, knowing uh, enough about you, uh, that your policies are going to be in line with those voters. I'm talking about the politics itself. Yeah, you know, it's something that always kept in the back of my head before I decided to run was that New York 5, it is 50 percent black. Uh, and when, you know, we do have 50% of people of color from all throughout the world, but at the same time, you know, there's been a lot of uh, legendary activists in the community who've done the good work. And I think that's important to listen to and follow. Um, but at the same time, people are going to vote for who they want to vote for. We know that Meeks has his face uh, and that those people are going to come out and vote for him at the end of the day, whether it's about, you know, his track record or whether it's his identity. I totally respect that. Uh, however, I've been living in this community and I see the injustices happen right in front of me every day. 
I see, I've been through Stop the Frisk. I see it happening to my neighbors. I, I've seen how poverty has really hurt us uh, for these last 22 years that he's been in office. So I think it's important to challenge those ideas, uh, but at the same time, keep it in, in context that, you know, together, at whether you're black or brown, we need to really focus on the issues that matter to us as a whole, which is overcome these obstacles and uh, trying to dismantle white supremacy, uh, you know, ideologues. And, and I think that, you know, it's important to have these discussions, but at the same time, we do need to challenge those ideas that are not working right now for working people. Hey, Representative Ocasio-Cortez is kind of the poster child for, um, you know, what you can do to to topple a, an established uh, member of Congress, right, from within your own party. You're seeing it now with challenges to Elliot Engel, your challenge, Greg Meeks, uh, you know, Jose Serrano probably stepped out of Congress because he knew he was going to get challenged. Uh, there's Gerald Nadler's getting challenged. All of these challenges seem sort of thematic. Do you feel like you're part of a group that is going after uh, some of these entrenched uh, incumbents? Or do you think this is something that, hey, you know, I'm Sean Chaudhary. I have a mission here. I want to make change in Washington. But do you feel like it's a group as well? You know, I think it started out the other way where, yeah, you know, I am somebody and I believe in and want to make a difference. But you know, having been endorsed by groups like Brand New Congress, we've been able to really connect with other like-minded individuals who are really fighting on the same agenda. And I think that's been great to be a part of that coalition. But I don't think that personally, I went in here thinking that, you know, I just want to top it down this democracy that's not working, even though internally, yes, I am angry at the system. Uh, but it's never been with the intention of, you know, coming in full throttle. Uh, right. But... But it, it's been it's been welcoming uh, working with other candidates throughout the country, even here in New York. Um, but I think you know, and personally, I just felt like some, something needs to be, something needs to be changed, and I was going to do it no matter what. Yeah, it sounds uh, inspiring. I'm going to ask you uh, just a fun question. But you know, when you think about being in Congress, when you have those fantasy moments, what's the cool thing about being in Congress that has nothing to do with politics or making change? Like the perk of Congress, the the parking space. Is there something that's sort of <laughs> exciting? I get to like walk over to John Lewis on the floor of Congress and say hi. What's that kind of a thing for you right now? Do, do you think of that? You know, when I, I when I think ahead of what that could look like, you know. I hear how toxic DC politics can be, so I keep that in the back of my head. But I'm really looking forward to just working with other legislators who you know, I look up to. Uh, and I think that just finally being in the same room and trying to figure out what we can do to help this country move forward, uh, I think it's going to be really great. And I think that there's a lot of potential for our movement um, you know, past 2020. Who are, some of those, uh, who are some of those legislators that, that you look up to that you would be excited to work with? Yeah, Ilhan Omar. I mean, the squad, you, you know, you put throughout the squad. Uh, I am actually looking forward to looking, uh, working with uh, Cory Booker, um, you know, Senator Bernie Sanders. I, I think that there's a core group of people that you know, have the right messaging. And sometimes we may have some differences. But again, I'm looking forward to just really talking it out with them, uh, because I think for so long, both Republicans and Democrats, establishment Democrats actually have the sphere of left wingers coming in and just trying to burn down the whole ground. Really, we're just trying to make our voices heard and have a seat at the table as well. So I'm looking to be productive and I'm looking going to Congress with other members of, uh, you know, candidates throughout the country, like Charles Booker down in Kentucky right now. I'm really, uh, I'm a big fan of his, so I'm rooting for him.
All right, that's great. Sean Chaudhary, it's the 23rd of June. Finally, people get to vote. Uh, we, we hope that, uh, that you have a great day on the 23rd and that this experience has been fantastic for you and that your voice certainly has mattered. Uh, what, tell, me your, uh, tell me your website for people who want to go there. We're going to put it on the screen anyway, but just say it if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, so since this is the last week, we do need volunteers to get us over the finish line. If you're interested in volunteering, uh, you can visit our website at www.sean2020.com. And there is a volunteer link form right there. And you could uh, just email us that and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. And you can get one of those posters if you want, I'm sure, yes. that are behind Sean right now. Uh, <laughs> Sean Chaudhary, thank you so much for coming on TYT. Thank you for, uh, for sharing your campaign with us. This is The Conversation. It's The Conversation on TYT. I'm Michael Shore. Thanks for watching. We are days away from the New York primary, a primary that was moved, was canceled, sort of, and then uh, is now finally going to be held on the 23rd of June. And that means there are primaries all over the state. But we go to New York City now. We welcome Isaiah James, who's challenging a sitting member of Congress, Yvette Clark, uh, in the 9th District of uh, New York, Brooklyn primarily. Isaiah, thanks for coming in. Uh, this is the big day. It's coming. And how do you feel? We'll start there. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. I feel good. I mean, my campaign, my team has worked their behinds off to get us to where we are now. Everything had to shift because of the coronavirus and the pandemic. But, you know, I just got off the phone with my campaign manager literally about 30 minutes ago, and we've called over 100,000 voters, and we got another 50,000 we're trying to call before this Tuesday. So we're working, even though it's behind the scenes, we're working. Yeah, and behind the scenes is sort of the only way you can work, which makes this year even more uh, difficult for a challenger, but difficult for anybody running for office. And we see it from the presidential on down. Let's talk about your motivation for running. I mean, it seems like the time is perfect for Isaiah James. You were a Black Lives Matter activist. You were in the military as well. Uh, you see uh, laid bare in front of us right now many of the problems that you addressed in your life. Uh, and, and though you are young, you've seen a lot of it uh, on both sides. Uh, what is it that makes you think that it's time for you and time for Yvette Clark not to be in Congress? Like you said, the, the times of the day, the situation that, we in, that we're in right now in this country calls for so much more than feckless corporate leadership. I mean, we're seeing it play out on the streets every day. And as you said, I'm 33 years old, but I've spent eight years, two months, 29 days in the military. I'm a BLM activist. More importantly, I'm a black man in America. So I've seen this my entire life. Racism is nothing new to me, but it's, it's now being filmed more so the eyes of the nation have finally turned to the plight of, of black people and people of color. But our times demand so much more. We've been talking about equity and equality for hundreds of years in this country. And finally, we're on a precipice for which candidates like me, it's time for us to step up. Because what we've been doing, this last 100, 200 year experiment has absolutely not been working, as is evident by the situation we're in today. A lot of people, they will be your colleagues should you win, think that uh, we definitely need tweaking, don't think that massive change is in order. But there are a lot of people uh, running for office like you and a lot of supporters of, of people like your candidacy, and I should say other candidacies as well, uh, who say that, no, we need massive change in, in America. What would you be looking to do uh, in your in the first days of uh, 2021 when you're after you're sworn in? Good question. So incrementalism is not the way we need right now. Incrementalism, half-hearted measures, you know what that gets us? 
That gets us the three-fifths clause. They said I was literally half a person as a black man. That gets us separate but equal. That gets us segregated classrooms and segregated buildings throughout the South that my mother grew up in. So incrementalism is not the way. We need bold reformational change. My first days in office, I would introduce a bill that defunds the police, that ends our 1033 program, which allows police officers to buy surplus military equipment. That I would introduce a bill that ends qualified immunity for police officers. I would also introduce a housing bill that deals with the ravages that, that people of color and black people in my community and poor people and working people have been dealing with because coronavirus, believe it or not, it did not cause these problems, but it ripped the scab off a festering wound that is income inequality, that is housing insecurity, that is racial injustice that has been in our society since this country was founded. And define for me what defunding the police means to you as a candidate, not uh, not necessarily. I mean, it could be the exact same an answer. But I think, you know, when you speak about the, your chosen profession now, which is politics, you, you have to address it in different ways. But what does it mean to you to defund the police? Great question. Just a little bit of correction. I'm never going to be in politics. Politics is backroom deals. I'm running to be a public servant. I've served the public my whole life, and that's what I'm going to do. So I'm never running to be a politician playing politics, number one. Number two, defunding the police looks like, to me, no federal dollars, absolutely no federal dollars going to any police agency around this country. That saves billions of dollars that they get. Two, again, ending the 1033 program, which funnels billions of dollars worth of money and equipment and surveillance equipment to police forces. That's number two. That money, number three, can be used for more mental health services. That money can be used... To, to add more beds to hospitals for, for folks who need it. That money can be used for after-school programs and diversionary programs and drug treatment programs. That's what that means. It also means ending our, our racist war on drugs, which has systematically targeted Black people and people of color in this country. It also means when we talk about police, we have to be specific and general. We're not just talking about the police you see riding around in your neighborhood. We're talking about state-sanctioned police, too. That's ICE, that's Immigration and Customs Enforcement, that's Department of Homeland Security, that's all these alphabet agencies that use surveillance and technology to, to put their boot, basically, on the neck of working people and people of color. So defending the police is a, is a massive project, but we need to do it in this country. And it seems like the wind is certainly at the sails of, of doing that. And I should clarify that I don't think of politicians, uh, I've covered them for a very, very long time, and I don't think it's a derisive term. I actually think it's a, it's a good calling. And I think that uh, everyone who goes there, uh, every candidate I've ever interviewed said, well, I'm not a politician. I'm not going to be doing those sorts of things. But it's part of what has to be done. So too is incrementalism. And fighting incrementalism is something that hasn't been done enough. So I think that's impressive as well. But I, I don't mean it as a term of derision to say that you're in politics. I think it's a it's actually a noble calling personally. Uh, I, I, I want to talk a, a little bit about th this notion of New York right now. I mean, there are a lot of sitting members of Congress, Democrats, who are getting challenged right now. And this does not happen. Uh, it's actually not ordinary that it happens at all. But you look from Elliot Engel to Gerald Nadler, you look uh, at Carolyn Maloney, you look at your race, uh, Yvette Clark, and there are others that I'm missing right now. These are, are members of Congress are being challenged because of incrementalism, I would say. Um, what do you feel in terms of being part of a movement in that way? I mean, I'm, I'm honored to be a part of that movement. You know, we have to be the change that we want to see in this country. Like I said before, whatever we have been doing to get us to where we are is not going to be enough to get us to where we need to be tomorrow. Incrementalism doesn't work. Imagine if 
during slavery, we've had incrementalism. It didn't work. We had to fight a war to end the practice of slavery. Jim Crow, incrementalism didn't work. It gave us separate facilities and separate everything. It didn't work. We had to march and demand to have our, our rights and our humanity recognized. Right now in this country, the rich are richer than they have ever been, and the poor are poorer than they have ever been. Incrementalism is not going to solve the problems that we are facing right now. We need bold reformational change. I'm proud and honored to be a part of that movement because the, the, the greatest tree that you can plant is one whose shade that you will never sit in. I am where I am today because somebody somewhere who didn't even know me sacrificed. They sat at those lunch counters. They marched. They got bit by those dogs and get their skin ripped off by those water hoses. And that's why I'm a candidate for Congress today. And I'll, I'll be damned if I'm not going to fight for the future generation, for my children and grandchildren and some kids that I don't even know. Like Bernie Sanders said, are you willing to fight for somebody you don't know? This is a hard task. It's arduous. The road is long. Nobody's born on the top of Mount Everest. We get there one step at a time. Yeah, I'm never going to get to Everest, by the way. But yes, I, <laughs> I like that. I, I, um, I, I, you know, I think that that, that that that's inspiring stuff. And I think also uh, you have already, as a member of the military, fought for people you don't know. You've fought for uh, everyone who's watching this uh, in the United States. So I think that that's an important distinction to make. Uh, tell me a little bit about an Yvette Clark voter who has said, you know what? I've voted for Yvette Clark. Perhaps even you have voted for Yvette Clark, Isaiah. But tell me about that type of voter who says, but this time I'm going to come to you. What they've said to you that's made that decision happen. They have actually spoken to me. They've talked to me. They, they see that the times demand more. They say, you know what? Yvette Clark is, a, is an empty shell. She's never here. We need somebody who's going to be representative of the people. We don't need somebody who's been in politics for 30 years. We need somebody fresh and young and new who has the same lived experiences as everybody else. I talk about student loans because I have them. I talk about healthcare because my wife has a pre-existing condition and I'm disabled. I talk about ending the military industrial complex because I've been there and seen it up close. And I talk about criminal justice reform because as a six foot eight black man, I know what it's like to look like a suspect when you walk out of the front door in the morning. They, they, people are so hungry for somebody genuine who actually cares and will fight for them and not the Fortune 500 corporations, somebody who's going to fight for the fortuneless 40 million. You might be, when you get there, the tallest person in Congress. Uh, I, I, you know, Tom <laughs> well, McMillan, who was a, so, yeah, Tom be. McMillan and Bill Bradley, both former NBA players, were in Congress. Tom Cotton is a tall senator, but man, six eight uh, in the U.S. House—that's pretty good. You what you want to make sure that uh, some of the shorter congressmen don't sit behind you. Uh, <laughs> the the um the, this idea of of getting to Congress and wanting to make change. You've seen someone like Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez and, and the, the other members of, of that class go there, but also realize that they have to play the game the way the game is played. That means you're gonna have Speaker Pelosi, uh, you're gonna have Leader Hoyer, you're gonna have Leader Clyburn there. Uh, how do you see working with a structure that exists, but also being adamant about the things you wanna get done? Before we get out, I wanna, I wanna hear you talk about that. Thank you for the question. So when we vote for the lesser of two evils, all we do is embolden evil either way. We're never going to change anything until we get a critical mass of progressives and fighters in Congress. So AOC and the Rashida Tlaibs and the Ilhans, they're a small, small segment right now. It's going to take more of us to get there. I don't want to work within the framework of a system that's corrupt, a system that, that pads the pockets of the rich. 
and the powerful. If Republicans can shut down the government because they don't like the black guy in office, Democrats should be able to stand up and voice our values and not vote for any bill that's going to help keep the rich rich. So my thing is integrity. I'm going to have integrity from the day I step in the halls of Congress. I'm going to fight for people in my community. and I won't vote for anything that helps the rich get richer. And can you bridge divides? Yes, you can bridge divides by talking. When people get in front of me, when people hear my message, when people see my passion and my fight, it's undeniable. I'm not standing up here touting this stuff because I like hearing myself speak. You know, I'm, I'm talking this stuff because this is real lived realities. People are dying every single day. And we, listen, like I said before, this is not an easy fight. But Martin Luther King Jr.'s fight wasn't either. Neither was Malcolm X. Neither was anybody who ever did anything of consequence for people they didn't know. We can bridge those divides by standing up for our values. Republicans do a lock, stock, and barrel. Democrats need to learn how to do it. They need to get a backbone and stiffen their spine and fight for the people out here, the working class and the poor. And Isaiah James wants to be that fighter in Congress. He's running from the 9th District of, uh, of uh, New York, which is central Brooklyn right there. Isaiah, thank you for the time. Give me quickly your website if people want to learn more about you. Tell me what the website is. Again, thank you for having me. It's Isaiah for Congress, I-S-I-A-H-F-O-R, congress.com, all the same social media. Okay. Isaiah for Congress, uh, good luck to you on primary day. Thanks for taking the time to come on. The Young Turk. This is The Conversation. Thank you so much.